I'm Brandon Carey. I'm Jason Grady. This is the Medic Class Citizen Podcast. So we're going to hop into a couple of studies. We're going to do some journal reviews. So uh, I think we got some pretty good stuff today. So yeah, I point out too, if I if you haven't gone and listened to the episode of how to review a journal or a paper, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that before jumping into this with us. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, I think maybe we could just introduce the the two that we're going to talk about today. And I want to give a shout out to Tyler Bell of Hall County Fire Services. Um, he sent us Pitchfork, which is a review of ketamine administration in the pediatric populations. Uh, we, we went over introduction to ketamine in a previous episode, and I made a statement of, well, there's not a lot of research out there to support ketamine use in pediatric population. And about 15 minutes later, we got a message. So, Tyler, thanks, man. I appreciate it. And Jason, what are you bringing to the table today? Yeah, the second paper we'll look at is uh, superglottic airway devices, uh, the variability with uh, developing negative intrathoracic pressure, uh, which was uh, published in Resuscitation. And uh, with this, uh, this was actually brought to us by Nick Adams, uh, who is with uh, Cobb Fire in Cobb County, Georgia. So thank you, Nick. Awesome. Awesome. So again, with that to say, folks, if there's something that you want us to review, send it in. We love it. We love the feedback and uh, we really appreciate you listening. Pitchfork, P-I-C-H-F-O-R-K, pain in children, fentanyl or ketamine. So essentially what this study is, is trying to achieve, it's comparing intranasal fentanyl versus ketamine for relief of moderate to severe pain in children with limb injuries. Um, and so kind of like what Jason was talking about, I'm going to kind of follow the same format that we laid out in, uh, the episode, how to read a study. So let's talk about the authors first. So yeah, we have five authors of this, uh, of this study. Uh, I'm not going to go each one by name, but this study comes out of Australia and, uh, it's conducted by, by researchers and professors and physicians from Monash Health Emergency Medicine Program and the University of Melbourne in Australia. Um, both are very large medical research centers and universities in Australia. So this is a, it's, they have pretty powerful resources in reference to the logistics of things, and uh, they have a lot of people involved with this. But the objective and the target are essentially putting ketamine and fentanyl head-to-head against each other, and the target is to see pain reduction at a 30-minute threshold post-administration. So with that being said, let's dive into the methods. We have a double-blinded, randomized controlled trial. Uh, The selection criteria was children of 3 to 13 years of age. Uh, They had to weigh less than 50 kilograms, which whenever I was that age, that would have excluded me. Um, Had isolated limb injury and a pain severity of 6 or greater. and If you're wondering, well, how in the world are you measuring a child's pain at 3 to 13 years of age? So for the younger children, they were using the FACES pain scale. And for the children closer to the 13 years of age point, they were using uh, the 0 to 11 point verbal scale. So as far as the dosing regimen for the medications that they were using, they were using 1.5 micrograms per kilogram of fentanyl intranasal 
or they utilized one milligram per kilogram of ketamine. Either way, both groups received oral ibuprofen at 10 milligrams per kilogram prior to the intranasal administration. Continuing on with the methods, they have an initial sample size of 80 patients. So they split the, the, the group of 80 patients into 40 and 40. With the ketamine group, there were four patients removed. Uh, one was too young, two, two of the patients were too heavy, and one of the patients, the, the report was actually lost. Fentanyl, we had three patients removed. So one was too young and two uh, actually withdrew from the trial. So that ends up with a total of 36 patients receiving ketamine and 37 patients receiving fentanyl. So in reference to the injuries that they were looking at, they're focusing on limb trauma. So the types of injuries, we have four main categories here. We have upper limb fractures and upper limb soft tissue trauma, but we also have upper, or excuse me, lower limb fractures and lower limb soft tissue trauma. And actually there's a pretty good distribution across both that received fentanyl and ketamine. So they're, they're pretty neck and neck. They're pretty even as far as uh, how many patients received each drug for each type of injury. So, and again, um, as I stated before, they were looking at pain reduction at a 15-minute interval, a 30-minute interval, and a 60-minute interval. So let's talk about the results. Um, so we're getting to the good part here. We're getting to the good stuff. The pain reduction was, quote, remarkably similar with both fentanyl and ketamine. However, there were significantly more adverse events in ketamine than fentanyl. And whenever I read that personally, I was like, oh, man, that sounds really bad. I'm thinking emergence reaction. I'm thinking some pretty severe hallucinations. But I just want to talk about the adverse reactions that they're speaking of. The study includes this. And if you look at table four, they're talking about bad taste in the mouth, drowsiness, dizziness, an itchy nose, nausea, dysphoria, hallucinations, and other. So, and the, the study goes on to talk about how while these while while these patients who received ketamine did have more adverse reactions, there were actually no incidences of emergence reaction or any type of distress caused by the hallucinations. So, yeah, that's that was, an important distinction. Yeah. Because um, you can just throw out uh, adverse reactions and without defining what those are. I mean, bad taste in your mouth. Hmm. But if that's, if that's the worst one you have, okay, I'll take that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in fact, it looks like the worst one was dizziness. So if I'm in pain because I broke my arm, I'm cool with being dizzy. Go ahead. Yeah. Hit me up. So let's put a number on significantly more adverse events. In fentanyl, we only had 15 of 37 patients had adverse events for a percentage of 40%. With ketamine, however, we had 28 of 36 patients had an adverse event. So that's around 77, 78% of the, uh, of the patients who had an adverse event. But again, if we're just talking about, you know, a bad taste in your mouth, that's not terrible if you're taking the pain away. So since we just talked about the results, let's go ahead and hop into the discussion and the conclusion. And uh, I thought that the authors pointed out some very good things here. There was a lot of subjectivity in the pain scales in reference to the differences in the age. So you have a, the pain tolerance from a three-year-old versus the pain tolerance of a 13-year-old and their ability to communicate that. So I thought that that was pretty, 
you know, pretty, pretty good of them to observe and bring that up in the discussion. Um, and they also say that the sample size was too small to analyze differences of injury subgroups. Uh, again, in the discussion, they talk about how ketamine was associated with a higher rate of adverse effects, but they re reiterated and restated that no emergence phenomena or distress from hallucinations were caused. And uh, overall, their conclusion was that ketamine can be a reasonable alternative to fentanyl. So, Jason, my big takeaway from this was that, you know, like I, whenever I talked about in the introduction to ketamine, I said, well, there's not a lot of data supporting the use of ketamine in pediatrics. Well, what I'm gathering from this is that it's safe, but it may not be the best frontline pain management if you have fentanyl as a uh, as a choice. Yeah, I agree with that. And I would say a couple other limitations, too, are are that not only is pain a little bit subjective and like you said with a three-year-old how do you how do you measure pain i mean if i'm you know with my three or four-year-old and they stub their toe you know they're throwing things across the floor thinking you know you think that they're they're dying yeah. um and also you have uh, a lot of variation i think in the injury itself you know you say soft tissue injury well what does that you know what does that really mean there's certain different levels of soft tissue injury how how deep it goes uh if it's near nerves um, and so you're going to have somewhere, I think the, uh, medication works better. And, uh, so I think that's why the sample size is important. And, uh, you know, you talked about that, uh, you know, being, um, you know, 80 patients and a couple, uh, you know, got lost, uh, to certain things or excluded. Um, so I think that's a good sample size. However, I think this could probably use a little bit more studying. Was there anything in the paper that said, uh, addressed, um, overdosing or inappropriate dosing, uh, either being uh, more accurate or less accurate with uh, nasal administration? Uh, they actually talked about how they utilized previous studies to select their dosing regimen, but they also talked about how they were measuring levels of sedation as well. So they utilized the University of Michigan sedation scale, which is a scale from zero to four, zero being that they're awake and alert and four meaning that you can't wake them up. So they are unrousable. So with that to say, um, they, they took track of that as well. None of the patients received a zero and none of the patients received a four. So every, everybody was either moderately sedated, deeply sedated, or minimally sedated. So that's, that's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So I think this is uh, I think this is a good option. I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily a game changer, uh, but I think it does go to show that uh, those that may be apprehensive to use ketamine uh, especially in pediatrics, you know, as we talked previously, there's some that are just afraid of ketamine, just the word ketamine. The fact that you would use it is uh, just beyond uh, anything they can imagine. Uh, mm -hmm. So this shows that it is safe and that you can use it in kids. And I think any time, not just in kids, but but adults as well, I think the, the nasal um, option of delivery is always a good one, not uh, just for the fact of not using needles, but I think it's it's absorbed better across the blood brain barrier um, faster and uh, more predictably. So our next paper comes from resuscitation. 
Uh, it does not have uh, one of those fancy acronyms or abbreviations like Pitchfork or Alps. Uh, this is uh, the the title describes what they're looking at: superglottic airway devices variably develop negative intrathoracic pressure. So this is a study by Joe Holly and others. Uh, Joe Holly is from the University of Tennessee, uh, along with um, Keith Lurie. Uh, from the University of Minnesota uh, and some of their writing partners. So this is uh, a paper looking at uh, superglottic airways, and uh, their hypothesis really is that superglottic airways will not seal the airway as well as standard endotracheal tube. And if you cannot seal the airway, you cannot develop intra negative intrathoracic pressure and your cardiac output is affected by it. So that's what they looked at. So this is a prospective crossover study using human cadavers. Uh, what they're doing is they're comparing all these devices with negative pressure during CPR and using negative pressure as a surrogate for intrathoracic pressure, knowing that intrathoracic pressure is really what uh, makes a difference. So of course they use endotracheal tubes and five superglottic airways. They use the King airway, they use the LMA, the AirQ, iGel, and CombiTube. So this is what they did. So they used uh, seven uh, recently deceased human cadavers. Uh, and, of course, the limitations with cadavers are they don't, uh, they, they don't function as live tissue or as live humans. So they, have to do, they had to do a few things. First, uh, the cadavers were refrigerated but never frozen. And right before they actually did the trials, the study, uh, they warmed the patient uh, to room temperature. They went one step further. They actually took a King Airway, put it in the airway, and inflated the balloon with warm water uh, just so they could get uh, the airway temperature as close uh, to a live person um, as possible. They used central uh, cannulation in the vasculature uh, to have uh, so they could have continuous hemomonitoring. So with this, of course, they needed to do uh, three different forms of CPR. So they had to control for this uh, very, very specifically. So they used three different types. The first you used was just conventional manual CPR, closed chest massage. Uh, they, the second one they used was automated CPR, and for this they used Lucas. And then the third, they used an active compression decompression device, which is the manual uh, compression device, uh, also called the rescue pump uh, by Zoll. So those are, those are the three ways that they did uh, CPR. And so they had to categorize these patients, and they came up with two different protocols. So protocol one was they placed an ET tube. After the ET tube was placed, they uh, put in the five different supraglottic airway devices. They did manual chest compressions for all six devices, and then they repeated all of these uh, ET tube, followed by five different supraglottic airways, and they repeated it. However, they changed the CPR to automated CPR plus an impedance threshold device. And then they repeated all of this using, again, they placed an ET tube, they put in the five different superglottic airways, and they used the active compression, decompression, uh, along with the impedance threshold device. Uh, it's also uh, 
it would be it's good to point out that uh, in between each use of the individual superglottic airways, the ET tube was placed. Uh, so the entire protocol was ET tube placed, followed by one of the superglottic airways, followed by the ET tube, and so on and so forth. Protocol two, they started with the ET tube. They used, of course, again, the five superglottic airways, but this time they used heads-up CPR. Uh, a lot of uh, a lot of uh, good data or good discussion, anyway, uh, has come along with heads-up CPR. So they wanted to look at this, and really what they wanted to see was, did it matter how the head was placed, uh, to what level it was placed, and in any of those scenarios, were the superglottic airways able to generate a good seal? Uh, so they placed the patient um, on a patient positioning device and went through these three series of compressions, manual chest compressions. Uh, the first try, um, the second one was automated CPR with impedance threshold device and uh, the active compression decompression. So those are the two uh, protocols that they used. They were, um, again, ET tube uh, followed by each individual supraglottic airway. So the results they measured for each of these protocols, so for protocol one, which is the three forms of uh, chest compressions along with the three forms of super, or five forms of superglottic airways. So for protocol one, virtually no negative intrathoracic pressure was generated without an impedance threshold device. Hmm. So regardless of whether or not it was the ET tube or the superglottic airways, none of them generated uh, really any meaningful negative intrathoracic pressure. Wow. With the impedance threshold device, there was minimal inter, uh, decreased um, intrathoracic pressure generated, but it was with the manual chest uh, CPR for all superglottic airways. In contrast to this, uh, this is uh, pretty interesting that the ET tube, the LMA, the IGEL, and the AIR-Q, okay, so the ET tube and three of the SGAs, superglottic airways, all had significant um, intrathoracic pressure decreased for both the automatic CPR and the active chest comp uh, compression decompression. Mm. The Combi tube and King had no significant negative intrathoracic pressure. Interesting. For both of those, automatic, automated CPR and active comp uh, compression, decompression. Um, and I'm, you know, I was, as I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, what are probably the two most common superglottic airways on the market right now? Absolutely. Combi tube and King Airway. So I thought that was, uh, that was pretty interesting. So protocol two, the heads up CPR, um, all five superglottic airways with the head in the lowest and the highest position, had similar negative thoracic pressure. Um, so the elevation did not alter the seal for any device. So I think that's that's uh, that's good news for heads-up CPR. There are mm -hmm. some arguments out there that uh, potentially that seal can be uh, broken uh, in the airway and you can have reduced intrathoracic pressure. Nice. So these are all, you know, these are, these are pretty interesting um, discussions here that 
with the increased negative pressure generated, we know that during recoil, the more negative pressure we generate, the more our cardiac output, and we have more survivors. That's uh, that's pretty clear. So if we look at these devices, which ones have the most negative pressure? Well, not all superglottic airways are the same. Um, there are a lot of limitations here, though. Anytime, you know, we've dealt with this when we talked about Alps and some others. Anytime you're talking about cardiac arrest, it is really, really difficult uh, to do randomized trials. So they really had to go the cadaver route. But, you know, cadavers, are they have non-viable tissue. Uh, their chest wall compliance is compromised. Their temperature is not the same. It cannot be controlled uh, exactly the same. So there's a lot of limitations to this uh, to this study, only using um, seven. Uh, so in conclusion, really the authors uh, decided uh, that in conclusion, uh, the choice of your supraglottic airway may contribute um, to a difference in clinical outcomes. Uh, that uh, supraglottic airways, um, whether or not the head is flat or elevated, there's no significant change in intrathoracic pressure. Uh, so, of course, uh, you know, as they're using the negative intrathoracic pressure as a surrogate, uh, you know, we can make um, perhaps some conclusions out of this. I don't know enough for practice change. Yeah, so this is, uh, you know, one of the discussions that's going on in pre-hospital medicine right now is... ET tube versus supraglottic airway. Um, you know, the supraglottic airway is, uh, for the most part, a blind insertion. It's not di direct um, laryngoscopy, whether or not you're doing it, uh, you know, visually or with a video. Um, you can do it during chest compressions. Um, but I think this is a, a really good discussion on uh, perhaps is ET tube use the gold standard? Should we be using superglottic airways, and does it matter which superglottic airways uh, we use? Um, I think that's uh, still out for discussion. And then the other thing is that I don't think that we um, in pre-hospital medicine really appreciate or understand as well as perhaps we should is the impedance threshold device. Um, you know, I think there's a lot uh, there's a lot to be studied, and of course we talked about things like the primed. Uh, trial um, and some of the good and bad um, along with that. But uh, it'll be interesting to hear from uh, some of the listeners. Uh, let us know if you're using the impedance threshold device much and uh, what your outcomes are. Uh, of course, we know in cardiac arrest there's not one silver bullet, uh, but I think this brings up a lot of really good points and uh, perhaps uh, we, this needs to be studied a little bit more. All right, cool. Well, I think that kind of wraps up the two studies that we were talking about today. So, folks, if you have anything else that you want us to look at, if you have any studies out there or any topics that you found uh, that you want to send to us, please don't hesitate to reach out to us. Again, you can hit us up at our website. You can get in there and you can subscribe. You can leave feedback to us without subscribing if you would prefer. You can also hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and just send us a link. Tell us a study that you want us to review. We'd be more than happy to do so. But uh, thanks again for listening.